Hi, and thanks for listening to another audio podcast from Creekside Community Church, Narangba, Queensland. For more information and resources, please visit our website at www.creekside.org.au. So last uh, Sunday, I gave out uh, some of these little candles. If you got one of these, um, maybe this week you lit it and prayed uh, the prayer that we talked about last Sunday. If you didn't get one of these, uh, we have plenty more of these, and we'd love to give you one. Um, So I want to just remind us of something that uh, is happening here in just a couple of weeks from now. Uh, We actually do have services next Sunday. That was just a little slip of the tongue from Gab, so don't get nervous. We do have services next Sunday. What we aren't having, and I'll go ahead and put that up on the screen, is a Christmas Day service this year. We're going to celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. And so we want to invite you to invite others to join you on Christmas Eve, and that's why we put invitations on your seat today, um, because we want to invite you to invite somebody to join you on Christmas Eve to celebrate Christmas with us here at Creekside. But last Sunday, we kicked off this series called Light of the World, and we handed out these little candles and invited people to light the candle throughout the week and pray a prayer that we're going to look at again today to remind us of the fact that Jesus truly is the life and light of the world. That's the point of the candle, is kind of a reminder. As I was thinking about the candle this week, and actually as I blew out my particular candle that I lit, I was reminded of the fact that sometimes a flame can begin to fade. In my own life, I know the flame of Christianity and of following Jesus. There was a time in my life when that flame began to fade. It was uh, my senior year of university, my last year of university, and um, I was going through kind of a rough patch with my faith, and specifically with the church that I was attending. And at the end of the day, I kind of walked away from the church for a period of time, and I walked away from my faith. And uh, I would say that the flame of Christianity for me had faded almost to the point where it was no longer burning. It was like this tiny little flame inside of me. But I had come to the conclusion that somehow, some way, through a very, very bad church experience, that Christianity, I'd come to this conclusion that Christianity was just this kind of man-made religion trying to keep the world in some sort of order so that we don't all spin out into chaos and kill each other and sleep with each other's spouses and murder one another and to steal from one another. I just felt like Christianity was some sort of man-made religion to try and help us to not spin into some sort of chaos. But inside of me, there was still a tiny little faint little light flame that would sometimes nudge me and remind me that there was a God that loved me and cared about me. And so although the flame got really, really faint, and it was almost as if the flame had completely faded out, there was still something inside of me, even the tiniest little flame, that reminded me that there was a God that loved me. And I don't know what your story is. I don't know if this is your first time in church in a long time or your first time in church ever. Or maybe you've been going to church your entire life and you've had an experience like my experience where the flame just about went out but there was a tiny little ember that was still glowing. And God for me in my story came along through a guy that I was working with, a guy named Dave Thornton who is a huge friend of mine still to this day. I'm so grateful for Dave. And he just gently and kindly kept blowing a little bit on that little flame that was still going. And over time, through lots of conversations with Dave, that flame grew from this tiny little thing that was almost out to to actually glowing bright again. And maybe your story is like that, or perhaps you're 
saying to yourself, Jason, I'm not even sure I have a flame. I'm not even sure if I believe there is a God, but I'm just here today. Here's what I would say to you. I still think that God is put inside of every single one of us. And the fact that you're here today might be telling of this truth, that God has placed inside every single one of us this void, this kind of hole that can only be answered in him. It's that, for some people, it's that thought that comes into your mind when you find yourself having a conversation with a God that you're not even sure exists, and you're saying to yourself, wait a second, I don't believe in God, but yet you're still having a conversation with Him, or it's that gentle nudging sometimes, and you begin to think to yourself, maybe there is a point to this whole thing, maybe there is more to this life than just what I'm experiencing right now. That's that little flame, that's that little light that is inside each and every one of us that God wants to use to turn on a light inside of our lives. And for me and my story, I feel like that flame came very close to going out. But I'm so incredibly grateful that God allowed in his sovereignty and his control of the universe somebody to come into my life and kind of speak into my life to help that flame not go out but to come back to life. Today I want to share with you a story a part of the Christmas story, which I kind of refer to as the dark side of Christmas. And I think in this story, in the dark side of Christmas, I think we might actually see the opportunity that God wants to use if that flame in your life is almost out or maybe you're not even sure if it ever existed or perhaps you just need to be reminded of the fact that God has placed inside of you this flame. I think this dark side of Christmas The villain of the Christmas story can help us to understand how God can reignite a flame and what that looks like. Now, this villain of Christmas, the dark side of the story of Christmas, has a villain. And to kind of set the stage for this villain, I need to back you up in history from before the birth of Jesus to kind of set the stage for who this character in the Christmas story is that is truly the villain of Christmas. How many people remember uh, Julius Caesar, the play in your English class from when you were a kid growing up? Anybody remember that? I don't remember it either, so I didn't pay attention in English class. This week I was reminded of the fact that the villain of the Christmas story is actually tied to the person of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was a uh, senator in Rome before Jesus was born in around 40 B.C., And he was assassinated, brutally assassinated. And then Shakespeare came along and he actually told the story of the assassination of Julius Caesar in a play, a really uh, very popular play from Julius Caesar. And so I thought to help set the stage this morning, I wanted to share with you the story of Julius Caesar through the kind of eyes of an English teacher, because I'm not an English teacher I found one, and so turn your attention to the screen so you can get an idea of Julius Caesar and his assassination. Hi, I'm Marika, and I am the assistant director on Julius Caesar. We're in Rome, it's 44 BC, and it's the festival of Lupercal, which is this wild fertility festival, big party in Rome. We have Julius Caesar, who is processing through the streets of Rome to celebrate his recent military triumph. And on his procession through the streets of Rome, he comes across a soothsayer, a soothsayer who says, beware the Ides of March. The Ides of March is just a day in the middle of March, according to the Roman calendar. We think it's about the 15th of March. Julius Caesar, who is super powerful, thinks, I don't need to pay any attention to him. Off he goes. Brutus and Cassius, two noblemen, two friends, two uh, politicians, they're involved in government, hear that... 
Julius Caesar is possibly being crowned king. And they, re they don't have kings in Rome. They haven't had kings in Rome for 500 years. So they're pretty worried that one man is going to become king and then become sole ruler of Rome. And they think that's just too much power for one person. And that's not good for everybody. We need, to, we need to get rid of Julius Caesar and we need to make sure we uphold the Republic. We have shared rulers in Rome. They plot to kill him. Caesar hasn't been listening to the warnings and on the Ides of March, everybody goes to the capital, business as usual. And as they start the day's business, the daggers come out and the conspirators assassinate Caesar. We think he had about 33 stab wounds. So they really, they really went for it. Caesar's dead. The conspirators think, great, we've saved Rome. We're gonna run through the streets crying liberty, freedom. We're going to have shared power again. It's all going to be great, but it's not. Mark Antony, really good friend of Caesar's, fantastic, uh, fantastic soldier, very, um, uh, very famous for being a great military leader, um, has seen the dead Julius Caesar and basically plots revenge on Brutus and Cassius. And so what he decides to do is to team up forces with somebody called Lepidus, who, is, um, uh, who had a strong army, and also somebody called Octavius Caesar. Octavius Caesar was Julius Caesar's nephew and had actually been appointed as his heir. And they go to war with Brutus and Cassius, who have fled out of Rome, quite a long way out of Rome, actually. We think about two, 300 miles outside of Rome. And they have a big battle. We see them fighting against each other. And sadly for Brutus and Cassius, it doesn't go their way. And they end up killing themselves when they realize that all is lost. Antony, Octavius, they're victorious in the end and they are going to be the new leaders of Rome. Luckily, we've also got Antony and Cleopatra, so you can see what happens 10 years later. All right, so we are left with two guys at the end of the assassination of Julius Caesar. Two guys that plotted revenge on those that killed and assassinated Julius Caesar in Rome. We're left with these two guys, Mark Antony and Octavius. Octavius will one day actually become Caesar Augustus. But in this moment, Octavius and Mark Antony are victorious, and they begin to lead Rome together. So they're kind of ruling Rome together. But like any good rulers, they don't want to rule together with somebody else. Just like Julius Caesar, they both had aspirations of actually ruling Rome alone and becoming the first emperor or the first king of Rome. And so the years go by and the tensions rise and eventually there's a civil war between Mark Antony, these once friends, and Octavius. During this period of time, Mark Antony had also struck up a friendship. He had hooked up with a queen down in Egypt, a famous queen. Maybe you remember the name of this famous queen. Her name was Cleopatra. And so Mark Antony and Cleopatra now have formed a union and a marriage with Egypt and Rome. And Octavius and Mark Antony, the tensions between them got so tense that the civil war broke out. And at the same time as this, there was another person that enters into the story because Rome had been victorious over in Judea where the Israelites, the Jewish people, lived. They had been victorious in military conquest over there. And so they had taken Jerusalem and they had taken Judea and Rome had set up a king to oversee Judea, a guy by the name of King Herod. King Herod the Great, some of you maybe have learned about him in history. Herod the Great did some amazing things we'll take a look at in just a moment. But Herod the Great, when these two guys started doing battle against each other, 
he took one of these two men kind of as a friend. He became a friend of Mark Antony and Cleopatra because he thought that Mark Antony would ultimately be the one to defeat Octavius and then he would be a good friend of the first emperor of Rome. Unfortunately for King Herod, although he had hosted Cleopatra and Mark Antony for some lavish parties and he would send them incredible gifts and he would invite them to Jerusalem, unfortunately for King Herod, he backed the wrong horse. Because when the civil war happened, Mark Antony was actually defeated by Octavius and they drove Cleopatra and Mark Antony back to Alexandria and they were defeated. So now all of a sudden you've got King Herod who's in Jerusalem overseeing Judea. The Romans had put him there, they had placed him there and he had dreams of actually not just overseeing Jerusalem and Judea, he had dreams of overseeing the entire portion of land around Israel. That was really his ultimate goal. But now he finds himself in a difficult spot because he has pledged his allegiance now for years to Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And Rome is the power that placed him in Jerusalem. And all of the sudden, he is now the archenemy of Octavius, who is the new leader of the Roman Empire. So basically, King Herod has a couple of options. He can either kill himself Or he can try to hide and wait around until the Roman army finally track him down and take care of him. And then all of a sudden, King Herod thinks to himself, there's one more option. And he decides to take the trip to the island of Rhodes, where Octavius is living at that time. And instead of waiting for the Roman army to come and find him, he decides to go head on and face Octavius. But he's a clever, ambitious guy. King Herod had big dreams for how he was going to dominate and rule over big kingdoms. And so he walked into Octavius. This is the most brilliant move on King Herod's part. He walks into Octavius and through a very compelling speech explains to Octavius how he had been a partner and an ally of Octavius's arch enemy, Mark Antony, from before the Civil War, throughout the Civil War, even to the very end of the Civil War, he had pledged his allegiance to Mark Antony, and he explained to Octavius, through a brilliant move, I'm going to take my allegiance in that loyalty that I had with Mark Antony, and I'm going to transfer it to you, Octavius. Because he knew that was his only chance of survival. Fortunately for King Herod, Octavius went with the story, And not only did he continue to be the king of of Jerusalem and Judea, Octavius actually granted, I'll put it up on the screen for you, he granted him more rule and more power of the entire region. He gave him Samaria and Galilee as well. And so in a brilliant move, King Herod goes to Octavius, pledges his allegiance to him, and saves his life, but he also promotes his legacy for a long time to come. Now, King Herod was a brilliant man. Not only was he a great politician, but he was, a, he was known as an incredible builder. Look at just a list of some of the things that King Herod built. He rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. So the temple had kind of broken down, and he rebuilt the Jewish temple 
to new grandeur and new levels. Um, he was just an incredible builder. He built port cities like Caesarea. He built aqueducts so that there was a water system to be able to move water around the city of Jerusalem. He also built fortresses. Some of you maybe are familiar with the fortress Masada. That was something that King Herod the Great built. He was an incredible architect, an incredible builder. But the problem with King Herod is that he had an insatiable ambition. He had an ambition that drove him to immense brutality. We can go ahead and bring up that list. He was so brutal to people. He would kill off people no matter what it was that they did. If they got in his way, he would just kill them off because he had such a huge ambition. He was cunning. He knew how to leverage politics. He knew how to leverage relationships. He just knew how to get done what he wanted to get done, which ultimately was that he wanted a legacy, not just for himself, but for his entire family. So much so that he would will to his sons the throne there in Jerusalem. And if one of his sons were to get in his way or to start doing something that he didn't want them to do, he would just kill off that son, change his will, and give the throne to another son. He did that four times. That's how brutal King Herod was. So King Herod is this guy ruling Jerusalem in the first century at the end of uh, the B.C. before Christ time period and the beginning of the time in which we live today. He was a brutal tyrant in Jerusalem who had one ambition, a huge ambition, to leave a lasting legacy of ruling the area for he and his family. This is the villain of Christmas. And Matthew records for us how that King Herod enters into the story of Christmas. Listen to what Matthew said. Matthew says it in this way. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, which oftentimes we refer to as three wise men from the east, came to Jerusalem to King Herod and asked a question. Now remember, this is one of the most brutal rulers the world has ever seen. And he has faced many threats to his throne, of which he has figured out a way to remove those threats every single time. They come to him and they ask this question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now wait a second. The three wise men come to the person who is known as king of the Jews, and they ask probably the stupidest question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews to this brutal leader? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We have the star, a Christmas star over the manger as a symbol of the fact that there was a star that rose and the three wise men, the magi, they saw the star and they knew that it was a sign that there had been a new ruler born, a new king, and they came to worship him except they forgot that they were asking the wrong person where this new king was. They were asking the very king of the Jews where this new king of the Jews was. And they weren't asking a nice king of the Jews. They were asking a brutal tyrant leader this question. When King Herod, Matthew writes, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And I love this extra line that Matthew puts in the story for us. Not only was King Herod disturbed, but you can imagine a tyrant, brutal leader if he's disturbed, then everyone around him is going to be disturbed because they knew that when King Herod was disturbed, 
people would lose their lives. So Matthew writes into the story for us, not only was King Herod disturbed, but all Jerusalem was disturbed right along with him. The story continues. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. Now you have to understand that Herod's family were not Jewish by descent. They had actually converted to Judaism because of his role as king of the Jews and king of Judea and overseeing Jerusalem and all the surrounding areas. So he had become Jewish. He didn't grow up Jewish. You have to understand that all of the people that grew up Jewish would have known exactly where the Messiah was going to be born. They would have learned where the Messiah was going to be born from a very young age. They would have all had the answer to that question on the tip of their tongue. But Herod didn't know the answer. So he brings in all the chief priests, all of the religious leaders, everyone that knows the law, and he asks them the question, probably a little bit nervous because they could lose their lives. They didn't respond with, how is it possible you don't know the answer to this question, King Herod? But they just simply told him. They said, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. These were people that knew exactly what the prophet had prophesied thousands of years beforehand, where the Messiah was going to be born. And they quote the prophet. They say, but you, Bethlehem, this is the prophet speaking, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, if you're Herod, listening to these words that were prophesied hundreds, even thousands of years ahead of time. And you're hearing the word that in Bethlehem a ruler is going to come, and yet you are the ruler of Jerusalem, you are the ruler of Judea, that would be an offensive thing that you've just heard. In fact, Herod wanted to sustain his legacy. Herod wanted to keep in control his descendants overseeing this area of the world. And now the prophet he's hearing has said that actually the ruler in this area is going to come out of a town called Bethlehem. So he's heard this from the chief priests. He's heard this from the religious leaders, the people that know the law and understand what the prophets had said. And so he decides to have a secret meeting with these three wise men who had come to ask the question. Matthew records for us. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. So Herod's starting to get all the details in place so that he can try to control the outcome of this event. There's a threat to his kingdom. There's a threat to his throne. There's a threat to his legacy. And he's going to get all the details because remember, King Herod, he's cunning, he's smart, and he's going to figure out how to eliminate this threat. Magi, come here. I know where this king was born Now tell me the date that you saw the star appear. He then told the Magi, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. So he appeals to the Magi who have seen the star and have come to worship this new king because of what the prophets had said. And King Herod, wanting to eliminate the threat to his throne, pleads with them to come back, tell him where he's located so that he can go and worship him too. Matthew continues with the story. 
After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped exactly over the place where the child was. And then the magi, the three wise men, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, Jerusalem is just slightly north of Bethlehem. In fact, Jerusalem is less than 10 kilometers north of Bethlehem. It's about the exact same distance from here to the Moray Shopping Center, Moray Field Shopping Center. That's about how far away it is. Moray Field's probably maybe a 10-minute drive, if that. Could probably walk there in about an hour and a half. You could probably ride a horse there because they didn't have cars back in those days. So you could probably ride a horse there in about 20, 30 minutes at the most. That's how close Jesus was born to this tyrant, brutal leader, King Herod. That's how close he was. And so the wise men go down and they find him. And they come to Mary and they come to the child. They come to Jesus and they begin to worship him. Now here in church, if you're regular in church, you hear the word worship Immediately, at least for me, what comes to my mind is singing and music because that's what we do together when we come to church oftentimes is we sing together and we worship God through music. But the real definition of the word worship doesn't necessarily have anything to do with music. Music is one way to express our worship, but the definition of the word worship is simply this. Worship is to show reverence and adoration for something. We can do that through music. But oftentimes, we do it through a physical posture. When the wise men came to see Jesus and worship him, Matthew includes the detail for us that they came and they knelt down before the child. See, worship is showing, it's an action of showing adoration and reverence for something. When you come into the presence of a king or a queen, you're invited to bow down. Or you're invited to kneel. Sometimes people will come into the presence of somebody so great that they'll not just lower themselves by bowing down or kneeling down, but they'll actually lay down prostrate on the ground, signifying to the person that they're in front of that they are in surrender to that person. They are lower than that person. They're showing reverence and honor and adoration to that person. And that's what the wise men came to do. And yet, just 10 kilometers away, King Herod missed an opportunity because he was so consumed by protecting the outcome of his legacy. He was all consumed with his legacy and the history of his family. That's all he cared about. He missed an opportunity that the Magi told him about. Less than 10 kilometers away, King Herod had an opportunity that he missed out on. Matthew continues the story. He says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the three wise men returned to their country by a different route. They were warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod and tell him what's going on. And so they took a different direction. When they had, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said to him, Get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. So just like the wise men were told to take a different route, an angel of the Lord 
came to Joseph, the father of Jesus, and said to him, take your wife, take your son, and head out to Egypt. Matthew continues for us. Stay there, the angel said, until I tell you, for Herod is going to kill, is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and they left for Egypt. What an incredible story. The dark side of Christmas. We oftentimes celebrate Christmas and we think of it as such a lovely scene with Jesus in the manger and the three wise men coming, and yet The whole time there was an evil plot against Jesus by this tyrant ruler named King Herod. Matthew continues, he says, When when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Imagine for a second. If Herod's furious, all of Jerusalem is scared to death. Because history tells us that when Herod was angry, when he was furious, people lost their lives. And that's what Matthew tells us happened next. He says he he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Could you imagine the scene? Soldiers going to every village around Bethlehem, going into homes. Could you imagine the scene of them dragging boys out of homes and just slaughtering all of the boys two years old and younger? Could you, could you even imagine the brutality of this man? And yet he was just 10 kilometers from the king of kings, and he missed it, all because he was consumed with protecting his legacy and the outcome that he wanted to, to achieve. He was consumed by this, and he missed it. Could you imagine Mary knowing in Egypt that all of those young boys had been slaughtered because of her son and living with the knowledge of that her whole life? Just a brutal part of the Christmas story. But eventually, King Herod, because of an incredible disease that many historians believe that he had a kidney disease that caused excruciating pain for him. In his old age, he actually tried to commit suicide because of the pain. But his cousin caught him trying to take his own life and stopped him from doing it. But eventually, Matthew tells us that Herod died. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, and he told him to do this. He said... Next slide. Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. What an incredible part of the Christmas story. I don't know if you came to church hoping for a kind of a joyful Christmas story this morning, and yay, peace, love, and joy. Isn't it a great time of the year? Nope, but you got King Herod instead. But there's an important lesson, I think, for all of us in King Herod's story. Because I think if we're all honest, if we're really honest, whether you're a church person or not a church person, whether you follow Jesus or you've never even thought about following Jesus, I think there's a little bit of King Herod in all of us sometimes. There's a little bit of We want to control the outcomes. We've got an agenda. We've got a plan. We've got a legacy. 
whatever it is, there's a little bit of King Herod in every single one of us where we want to control the outcomes of our lives. And yet the reality is, just like King Herod, we're not in control of the outcomes. And yet in the midst of trying to control the outcomes, we could, just like King Herod, miss an opportunity to worship the King of Kings, even in this season that we're in today. Some of you may be here and you're saying, you know what, Jason, I'm not even sure I believe this whole story you've told this morning. I'm not sure if, if the Bible's even true or not. I think inside of us, though, as I said in the beginning, there's something that nudges us every so often. There's something, even though maybe we once believed and we had faith, the flame is still there. It's, it maybe is fading, but it's, it's still there. This thing that God has put inside all of us. And even if we're not sure we believe it all or not, there's something inside of us that knows that there's a God out there who has a plan for our lives. And yet because we're trying to control the outcomes, because we're trying to control every situation, because we want to leave a legacy that we want to leave, it's quite possible that we would miss the opportunity to worship the true king of kings, the true king of the Jews. Imagine sitting with Herod today and saying to Herod, you so badly wanted to leave a legacy. You so badly wanted to be known as king of Judea or king of the Jews. You so badly wanted to pass on this legacy to your descendants so that your family's name would always be talked about in Judea. And yet you missed the opportunity to tie yourself to the legacy of Jesus who today we're talking about, and we're talking about you, but not in a story that you would want to tell, Herod. You're like a tiny little footnote in the story of Jesus. See, we're, we're here to celebrate Jesus, not Herod, and you're just this tiny little footnote in the story of Jesus that all the world is celebrating. And you were just 10 kilometers, less than 10 kilometers, and you missed it. By the end of the first century, Jesus had grown up, become a man, performed miracles. He'd been crucified. He'd been buried. And he rose again three days later. That kicked off an incredible movement of Christianity all over the world. Hundreds, if not thousands, have become followers of Jesus in the first century. Many people actually losing their lives. And by the end of the first century, Jesus' best friend, John, begins to write about Jesus' life. He's lived through Herod. He's lived through Nero. He's lived through the temple that Herod built. In 70 AD, before the end of the first century, it was completely wiped out. Herod missed the opportunity. This grand temple that he had built, completely gone, scraped off the Temple Mount. John had lived through all of this, all of this darkness in the world. And yet at the end of his life, many historians believe that John was probably the last living apostle because all of the others had been killed off. After the first century is almost over, John summarizes the life of Jesus in these words. He says, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Not just for Jewish people. 
Herod, you missed it. You missed that he was the light for all mankind. He was just down the road from you. You could have taken a one-hour walk and worshipped with the Magi, the light of all mankind, and you missed the opportunity. And then I love how John talks about this Jesus and how this light overcomes the darkness. He says these words. He says, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this Christmas season, whether you're a church person, not a church person, believe the Bible, don't believe the Bible, been going to church your whole life, or this is your first time in church. When we think of the story of King Herod, I think we have a a decision to make. We can either, like King Herod, resist this Jesus, this king that we celebrate during this season. Or we can, like the Magi, surrender our lives in worship to him. Our goals, our ambitions, our legacy, the thing that we're trying to control, whatever it is in your world. I don't know what it is in your world. But King Herod resisted it, and he missed the opportunity. The Magi came, and they worshipped and surrendered their lives to this brand new baby king. This Christmas season, we have the decision to make. We can either resist, or we can surrender. I don't know what that looks like for you. There may be an area of your life that you've been holding on to, and you've just got to give it over to God and surrender it to him. Maybe God's been inviting you to take a step towards him. Maybe you've started following him and you've thought about going public with your faith and being baptized and telling people, your friends and family, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus, but you've just never surrendered. You kind of resisted that idea. You're nervous about it. You feel, I don't know what it is. I don't know what that surrender looks like for you. Maybe it's a different step for you. Maybe for you, it's just simply starting to open up your eyes and open up your mind to the fact that God maybe does exist and he does love you and he wants a relationship with you. Maybe that's your first step of surrender. I don't know what it looks like for you, but I want to invite all of us this week to maybe light that candle we gave you last Sunday. If you need another one, we've got plenty more of them. I want to invite you this week, maybe every day, maybe just once this week, to light the candle And to pray a very simple prayer, similar to what we prayed last week. Looks like this. Jesus, you are the light and life that overcomes the darkness. And then just add this simple line. I worship you. Remember, worship is adoring and giving reverence to somebody. It's surrendering. It's lowering yourself. It's it's handing over something that maybe you've been trying to hold on to and control like Herod had been trying to control the outcomes of his life. And just simply saying, Jesus, you are the light and the life and you overcome the darkness and I'm going to surrender and worship you this season. I'm going to ask the band to come and lead us in a song as we wrap up. I'm going to show you the words of the song. It says this, Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Opened my eyes, let me see. Beauty that made this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with you. And then I love these lines. Here I am to worship. 
I'm surrendering myself to you, God. I'm not going to be like Herod and resist you. I'm surrendering. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you are my God. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray together and then we're going to sing this song together as we wrap up this morning. God, thank you. Thank you for preserving this kind of dark, evil story in the midst of the beautiful Christmas story. God, thanks for leaving this part of the story there for us to learn from today. And God, I pray for every single one of us, myself included, God, I pray that we wouldn't be like Herod, so close, and yet he missed it. God, I pray for every single one of us that we would open up our hearts and our lives to you this Christmas season and not resist what you have for us, but that we would surrender ourselves to you. Maybe God, some for the first time, maybe some for the first time in a long time. God, I pray that you would help us to worship and surrender our lives to you, I pray in Jesus' name.